some uh, month, oh, some weeks ago anyway now, um, Charles started a, a series on Hebrews, uh, which we are picking up again, and um, I've been asked to look at Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, um, and certainly the last two-thirds of it, in my Bible anyway, are headed the blood of Christ. In the first ten or so verses, uh, the writer's just been reminding the Jews of some of the aspects of the temple worship. And um, he comes to the end of the passage and says in verse 9, this is an illustration from the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying unto the time of the new order. And what Hebrews is about in many respects is demonstrating that in every aspect, Jesus Christ is superior to everything that's gone before and is superior to everything that is. And so what he's now looking at is the Old Testament sacrifices and how Christ is so much superior. And he's summed up by saying, well, the Old Testament is illustrative and it's only really effective in that it clears us ceremonially. It doesn't deal with us internally and it doesn't deal with our consciences. And Jesus, if you remembered, had said in, uh, when preaching once that it's out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, and so on. And says, these are what makes a man unclean, not dirty hands, etc. And so the problem wasn't so much behavior as that there needed to be a change. And that's what Christ has come to effect. And that's what, Roman, uh, sorry, that's what Hebrews 9 is really um, demonstrating. So we're going to look at um, Hebrews 9, but we're going to flick back to that passage in Leviticus. Um, and Leviticus is one of those popular books that everyone loves reading. But uh, it has got some tremendous truths in it. And really, you can't understand what Christ is all about without having some understanding of what Leviticus is about. Because all of Christ's work is foretold in Leviticus. Um, and we, if we get to um, verse 12 of um, the passage we're looking at, we find, um, sorry, verse 11, we find that Christ has come as the high priest of the good things that are already here. He's going to do something that the Old Testament couldn't do. What I want to do is look at um, that passage in Leviticus just for a few moments and see how it can demonstrate and show us why Christ came and what it was that Christ came to achieve. And then we can understand perhaps where Hebrews 9 is going. But why is there so much emphasis in the Bible on blood? John, John you remember, says that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, blood, cleaning? Well, if I said to Faye, can you clean, wash some shirts for me? Can you put me in the washing machine and then put your, dishwasher, your, your, your powder in and then add blood instead of water? And it wouldn't actually clean very much. It would stain. 
So blood in and of itself doesn't have any sort of magical properties. So why is blood so important? Well, if you flick over to chapter 17 of Leviticus, in verse 11, I think it is, yeah, it says this. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So the reason blood is so important is that that's God's way of providing us with atonement. It's God's method. That's what he decided. Now, why? Well, if you remember in your New Testament, in um, uh, where is it? Romans uh, 6.23, Paul has been talking about sin and the effect that it has, it has. And he says this, the wages of sin is death. And here we've got God talking about making atonement on the altar. So what's that got to do with death? Well, atonement is basically paying the price to clear a debt. And the debt that we all have, as far as God is concerned, is sin, and the wages of sin is death. And so that's how the two things tie up. We'll look at it in a bit, 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 bit clearer, perhaps, in a moment. So we've got this idea of atonement. And then if you flick back into chapter 16, we've got these two goats. Now, why have I gone to Leviticus 16 particularly? Well, it's quite interesting. If you read Hebrews 9, you'll find it's all about sacrifice. And it's all about animal sacrifice. And there's one animal that isn't mentioned anywhere in Hebrews 9. And it's a sheep. And you would think, well, hang on. Surely... There's got to be a sheep in there somewhere. And the reason for that is that Hebrews 9 is relating back to the Day of Atonement, which was central to the Jews. It was so central that they just referred to it as the day. And if anybody said anything about the day, the Jew would immediately know that they were talking about the Day of Atonement and flick back there, because it was so central. And it was there that God first had described how this blood of atonement, how this sacrifice was actually going to work. And there are two goats involved, but it's one offering. And it's important to remember that because because the second goat doesn't die, some people have used that to, to try and say, well, death isn't really the death of the sacrifice isn't really that important. And that's because they've separated the two. But in fact, the the, the second goat's activity is dependent on the first goat's activity. So we'll come to that in a minute. But there are two goats and they're one sacrifice. And the second goat, sorry, the first goat, I've gone back two chapters, that's why I thought I'd I'd gone balmy for a minute. Right, sorry. In verse 15 it says this, that Aaron is to slaughter this goat as a sin offering for the people, to take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. And the bull's blood was really a a sacrifice to cleanse him so that he could then carry out this other work. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the sins of the Israelites. And he goes on to say later on, 
that this blood is going to make atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community. So what does atonement mean? Well, there are three words that are sort of involved in explaining that. The first one is, is, is the idea of covering. When Moses was building the ark, he covered the wood in pitch to make it waterproof. And that word that covering with pitch, it was, was descriptive of what he was doing. And in the same way, our sins are covered. They're not covered up, they're not ignored, but they're covered by this blood. And so when God see God, do you remember when God was going over the, at the Passover, when he saw the blood on the lintels, he passed over. Um, the second word is this word ransom. We're paying a price, the ransom price, the price of our sins. And the third one is to wipe clean or purge. And what Christ was doing was all of those things. He was covering our sins, he was purging us, but specifically he was redeeming us. And traditionally that's been the, word, that's been the way that the, the word's been understood. And there are, well, hundreds might be an exaggeration, but there are literally scores of passages in the Bible where this whole question, this whole idea of redemption, this payment of our debt is dealt with. And so this goat is specifically sacrificed to atone for, to pay for the sins of the people. And that's the first goat. And it's important. People like using shorthand and devices. And there's there's a word, the, the word atonement can be split into three parts. Act, one, meant. And so folks will say, well, that's what atonement is. Well, it's not actually. It's it's misleading. Atonement is what produces at one meant. It's the atonement that produces the reconciliation. Unless the sacrifice is made, there can be no relationship with God. And it's important to recognize the importance of, of, of that. So this first goat is sacrificed as an atonement. And then we come to the second goat. And the second goat, in verse 20, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, etc., he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert. So there are two things happening here. Firstly, our sins are atoned for, the debt is paid, and then all their sins are placed on this second goat, which is sent out into the wilderness. And Christ Christ did both of those things for us. He paid the price, and once that price was paid, the sins are removed, which is why it says in another part of scriptures, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. So these two goats are a picture of what Christ was doing on the cross. Firstly, he was paying the price of our sins, and secondly, he was removing from us all the guilt and all of the filth of that sinfulness. He was just removing it and passing it away. 
Come back to Hebrews um, and look at uh, Hebrews 9, chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, and pick it up from there. From there. So this Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So that price that he paid has eternal consequences. It doesn't just deal with the sins of the day, it deals with the sins of eternity. And it was once for all. He did it once. He, he, once for all, in verse 12, he, he once for all, his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And he says, how much more shall the blood of Christ be effective? If the blood of a goat could have so much effect, how much more could the blood of the Son of God have? And he's comparing the two and saying, look, this is what happened under the Old Testament and it covered you and dealt with you ceremonially, but how much more has Christ achieved? He's done everything to attain our eternal salvation. And it's interesting to look at the nature of the death because it was violent and it was redemptive. God laid upon the goat the sin and God laid upon his son our sin. And that's how Christ understood his own ministry because he said this in Mark 10. <clears throat> For even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And in the Greek, the word anti is used. So it's not a ransom so much on behalf of, but in place of. So the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom in place of many. And so we have two words that are used a lot in the sort of, if you're looking at the sort of theology of the thing. In the first place, the first goat was substituted for us. And Christ is substituted for us. And in the second place, the sin is identified on the goat. And our sin is identified in Christ. So from those two goats, we can see what Christ was actually achieving on our behalf. He was taking our sin on himself. He was bearing the penalty. And then he was removing the sin from us. So the big problem all the way along has been sin. And if we think about it, when Christ, was, when Christ was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy spirit, with all thy strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And really, just even looking at those two commandments, it demonstrates to us how far short we fall of God's ideal. And, and the word sin means falling short of God's ideal. It means cutting across what God has ordained us to be. There's the idea that we're sort of out of kilter with God. We're twisted. We've, we've, got, we've got it wrong. And that's our problem. How can we have a relationship with a holy God who is absolutely perfect? But it's also God's problem. Because how can he as a perfectly holy God, have any dealings with us 
who are totally unholy. Charles uses a really good illustration um, of, of the way that sin and God react. And he said when he was a, a young boy, he, he used to try and push two magnets together. And much as he tried to push the magnets together, there was always this magnetic field in, in between stopping, and there was just no way those two things could get together. And that's a picture of us and God. It's not that God doesn't want to have fellowship with us. It's just that our sin creates this barrier. But because of what Christ has done on the cross, if we look at verse 15, we find this. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, though those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So that magnetic field has been removed and we can now have relationship, fellowship with God because that sin has been dealt with. It's been paid for on the cross. And that's the glory of the blood of Christ. It takes away my sin and your sin. So he's able to mediate between God and man. And it says, by means of death. So he died in my place. Now, for many people, that's very unfair. In fact, it's immoral. Because they, may, they say, well, how can a third party take my sins upon themselves? How can God sort of dump it all on Christ? And that would be, it would be unfair. It would be immoral if there were a third party involved, but there's not. And that's the other aspect of the cross that we we need to look at. Because it was God in Christ. You get this picture sometimes presented that we've got this angry God and us as sinners and Jesus in the middle trying to sort of placate him and trying to sort of get him on our side. But that isn't the gospel at all. The gospel is that God so loved the world, that God sent his son, that Jesus came willingly as part of the plan that he and the Father had for the redemption of mankind. And Jesus is equally against sin as the Father. You remember the story in the temple. So it's not that we've got God here and us here and Christ, some sort of third party in between. We've got God sending his Son as a man And God himself, as a man, God the Son, taking upon himself all the penalty that was due us. So there's no unfairness, there's no unholiness about it, because we've got the perfect Son of God taking upon himself all of our sin. It's God so loving us, God so generous, that God spares not his own Son. And that ought to give us some idea of how serious sin is and how God reacts to sin. If the only way that God could deal with sin was to send his son to die, how much must he hate sin? And how much must he love us that he sent Jesus upon that cross? In the very first chapter of Hebrews, it says this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. 
at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After, this is Jesus, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So God sent his son, the express radiation of, uh, radiance of his glory, the one who holds everything by his powerful word. He became sin for you and for me. This isn't just a man upon a cross. This is God, the son in human form, truly a man, truly God, being sacrificed for you and for me. That's how much it cost. I could look at some other scriptures, but we're running short of time, so I won't. But, um, but there are lots of scriptures. Just, just read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for example, or Colossians 1, and we get this picture that there is this Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us. There's a picture by a guy called Buttrick saw a picture in a, in, in a church in Italy which impressed him. And it was a picture of Christ on the cross. And you can see the nails going right through the hands and feet. But behind Christ, there's a sort of shadowy presence. And the idea behind the picture is that as the nails go through Christ's hands, they go into God. So that it's the Godhead it's not just a man upon a cross. It's God the Son. And God the Father feels the pain of God the Son. And that's how much God, that's how much God loves us. We'll, we'll skip over the next, the next section of Hebrews 9. But basically, what he's demonstrating there, using the picture of a will, is that it was necessary for Jesus to die so that all the blessings of God could be made available to us. But because Christ died, everything that God has for us is available to us. I, there's a hymn from a, a um, I think it's probably Isaac Watts, it sounds like him, um, which says, um, In him the tribes of Adam boast more glories than their father lost. And what he's saying is that we don't just get back what we lost in Adam, what we've lost because of our sin, but we get so much more. And Christ died that we can have that so much more the glory of a new creation, the glory of a new heaven, and the glory of eternity with a father. But let's just quickly look at uh, the last section, starting at 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered into heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. So in the Old Testament, the sacrifice took place in the temple and it was localized. Here we've got Christ in heaven. And it's an eternal salvation. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that's what the blood of Christ is about. It's the bloodshed. It's his death upon that cross. But the glory is that he doesn't stay there, he's raised. 
But it goes on in verse 27 to say this, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And there's the challenge to each one of us. Are we waiting for him? When we're face to face with God, are we going to be relying upon Jesus' death upon the cross? Or are we going to be standing before God in our own righteousness, in our own goodness, and expecting to be able to deal face to face with God? Judgment will come for every one of us. But Christ has borne judgment for those who are waiting for him. And the question for each one of us really is, do I know God's salvation? Not, am I sort of hoping it might be all right on the night or if I can be good enough? Because as we sang in that last song, nothing in my hands I bring. I have nothing to offer. Christ has done it all. And that's the basis of our salvation. So are you trusting Jesus is really the question. And do you know that you're saved?